Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. And so we're making our way through Galatians, and we have found ourselves in chapter 4, verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 20. So let's uh, look together at the Word of God. It says this, I beg you, Paul says, I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So I have become your enemy by telling you the truth. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it's always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I wish, but I could wish to be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray over this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that you would teach us. You would lay on our heart those we know who are enslaved with false doctrine. And that you would give us a passion to preach the truth to them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might turn me down just a tad. Um, Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. 
was born in Puerto Rico in 1949. He was a former heroin addict and a convict, and he was convinced and he believed and lived as if he was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The man, he would call himself, the second coming of Christ. He not only called himself the Messiah, but he also claimed to be the Antichrist. I don't understand why you could be the Christ and the Antichrist, but he had 666 tattooed on his arm. He formed his own ministry in the mid-80s called Growing in Grace Ministry, or sometimes it was called God's Government on Earth. And it was headquartered in Miami, Florida, but he would travel all over, and he would have these nine security guards that would travel with him. He boasted that he had two million followers all over the world in 20 different countries, mostly in Central and, and South America, and some even in the United States, he would say. There was a largely Hispanic following, and his people that followed him, they called him everything from apostle to the immortal Jesus Christ man, and they would give him his, their entire savings, they would give him cars, one person gave him a million-dollar home uh, in a gated community. They would give him businesses and estates. And you guessed it, while his people were probably living poor, he amassed, amassed great, great wealth. Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda's message was very basic. His message was freedom to indulge. He did not believe in the devil, he taught that the devil, hell, and sin are non-existent. He preached that prayer was a waste of time and that the Ten Commandments, and by that we mean any kind of moral or ethical guidelines, were irrelevant. That you can live however you want to. Now that will gain a big following. If you preach, you can live however you want to preach, uh, however you want to live. And in August 2013, Miranda died of cirrhosis of the liver. Wonder how that happened. And his death is still controversial among his believers because they insist he did not die because he's immortal. And some of them gave him the title, after he died, they gave him the title Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, even after he died. Now, here's a man who had convinced maybe a couple million people. I don't know how many followers he really had, but you look up on YouTube, and he had a following. I mean, not YouTube, but on Google. You can do a little bit of research on him. And, uh, and even though he has died, there are still some people who are still trying to continue his ministry. I think I counted six other people trying to attach themselves to this ministry to continue it on, one of them being his ex-wife, who is now like an ex-widow or whatever that is. But uh, ex-widow isn't quite right, isn't it? Because, I don't know, whatever. He died. 
He was not immortal. And still, there were people who are deceived. And these people are still being spiritually enslaved by this false teacher. And you know that there are family members who are hurt because of the people who still buy in to this lie. That this person sold everything they had and gave it to this false teacher and perhaps the family needed whatever was being given away. Or, or there, there, was, there, there was relationships that were broken because this person was following a false Christ. So how... Do you reach out to someone like that? How do you reach out to somebody who is engulfed in some sort of false teaching? Whether it be someone who is following something as blatant as some guy who says he's Christ and the Antichrist, or something more mainstream, maybe a friend or family member who is Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, or maybe someone who is... In our, in our circle of friends, of believers, who is caught up in legalism or some other false teaching. We know that most people are not fooled by that kind of false doctrine where there is someone who says, hey, I just want you all to know I am Jesus Christ in the flesh reincarnated. We're, most people are not fooled by that, but there are some. But there is all sorts of insidious teaching. But we may know somebody who's following a teacher who denies sin or has a hard time declaring that a person without Christ is going to go to hell or popular evangelical teachers who proclaim we're little gods, which, which happens they're not really evangelical, but they claim to be. All of those, by the way, are being taught right now on television somewhere. Those false teachings. Teachers who fill stadium-sized churches, who have books lining Christian books, they have books lining walls in Christian bookstores, and they deny the Trinity and other essentials of the Christian faith. And people love that kind of teaching. Or, or other other teaching that is not biblical, but they put it out on display. So how do we interact with those who have been fooled by some of these subtle, false teachers? How do we to help those who have been tricked, who have been led astray with false doctrine? Well, that's where we, we come to in Paul's letter. That's what he is really talking about here. He's now appealing to them. Remember, we spent three weeks or, or so talking about their life before Christ and after Christ, and he just cannot believe that they're not getting what happened here. And now he is appealing to them. And so we can learn from Paul's interaction with the Galatian church how we can respond to those we know who might be struggling with this. And so the first thing we see that Paul teaches us is that we need to seek to restore the relationship. The false teaching might have busted this relationship. It might have harmed the relationship, but we should seek to restore it. False doctrine damaged the relationship between Paul and the Galatian church. 
And believers who buy into false doctrine, they will damage their relationship with other Christians. They'll make it the only thing. They'll make a side issue the main thing, and they will not want to discuss it in a reasonable way. And if you disagree with them, they'll cast you out, and it's just simply a side doctrine. If this happens... How do we restore that relationship? How do we lead that person back to the truth? Well, Paul said the first step in, that relation, in, in restoring that relationship is to remind them of the past relationship they have, they have enjoyed. Remember the past relationship. Look what he says in verses 12 through 14. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also became as you are, You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a body illness, a bodily illness, that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Paul says, look, I want you to become like Paul. Paul says, become like Paul. He's not being arrogant here. He's begging them to become like he is, that is, free in Christ and not enslaved by false doctrine. He's calling them to liberty. He's calling them to Christ. Paul was a man who lived under the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he understood what it meant to live under the law. And then he was freed from it when he came to know Jesus Christ. And now the Galatian church, they were, they were free of the law, and now they're wanting to come back under it. And Paul says, no, become like me. Leave this, this legalism of the law and come follow Christ. And, you know, we are at this, this asking Someone to become like them. That is what we do when we share the gospel. When we go to somebody and share the gospel, we are saying we want you to become like us. And that is a strange word. That doesn't sound right to our ears. But we are saying, I was enslaved by sin. And now I am free. And person who doesn't know Christ, I want you to become like me and be free in Christ. We want them to be free. That is, that is what we are calling people to. And Paul says, I want you to become like me. And he says, I've, because I've become like you. He associated himself with the Gentiles. Here's this Jewish man who was raised to really understand what the law was, to, to do he was raised to do the legalism that was under the law, and he became free, and he'd go to the Galatian church, and he would eat what they would eat, and he would do what they would do, and live how they would live as Gentiles. I don't mean sinfully, but I mean he would live like the Gentiles. And he did that. He identified with them so he could preach the gospel to them. He came out from under the law through salvation, and then he lived as a Gentile 
to bring Gentiles to Christ. We read this in another passage in 1 Corinthians 9. He, he refers to this here to the church in Corinth, and he says this in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law, you could say the Gentiles, the Galatian church, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. He says, I will, I will live like the Gentiles. I still have the law of Christ. The Holy Spirit was in, with, is, is within me. I know the things I should do and shouldn't do. There's still a thing called sin, and I need to live according to the way Christ wants me to, but I can go over to the Gentiles, and I can eat the bacon and not be unclean, and I can go and go into their house and not be unclean, and I can share meals with them, and I can develop a relationship with them so that I can share the gospel with them, and maybe one of them will come to know Christ. And so he reminds them of this past relationship. And he says, become like me because I've become like you. He says, you've done me no wrong. They have treated him well. They treated him kindly in spite of his illness. When, when Paul met the, the church in Galatia, he was sick with something. 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I had this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, there was this physical ailment that he had. And there's people who try to identify what it is. There's some who say what the thorn of the flesh was. They say it was malaria. Some think he was recovering from the stoning that he received in Lystra. Some think it was some sort of eye, uh, eye disorder. It doesn't really matter what it was. Because the point is, Paul was not at his best when he met these people. He might have been at his lowest. He was sick. Whatever was going on, it wasn't pleasant to look at, he'll say in a little bit. And these people could have saw Paul dealing with some sort of physical ailment that everyone knew, and he said, I want to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't have his you know, hair all combed and all the makeup on or whatever. You know, he didn't have nice clothes on. He was in a bad way, and he came to them, and they said, we're going to love on you. And they treated him kindly. And they might have been tempted to reject him. In fact, the word trial there um, kind of indicates that this was a repulsive disease, whatever it was. And they did not despise him, it says. That means they didn't reject him or cast him out or just forget him or scorn him. They didn't loathe him, it says, because... Uh, and that word literally means spit out. They received him. 
They're, they're strong verbs to indicate that whatever Paul had, the people very well could have been tempted to have a feeling of repugnance and say, you know what, I really don't want to deal with that mess. That person's messy. And i got to tell you, the lost are messy. We, and, and they were saying, man, instead of saying, we don't want to deal with whatever this is, it says they, they received him kindly. And so he's reminding them of that. He's reminding them of this past relationship where he was in the worst condition of his life and their relationship was such that they came in and kindly received him and listened to him and came to know the gospel. They received him openly. They received him the same way an angel of God would have received him. In fact, he says, not even that, they received him just like Jesus Christ would have received him. That was their past relationship. That was the fellowship they had in the past. And Paul is just taking time to remind them of the deep love they had and the fellowship they shared at one time. That, and, and, and Paul and this, these precious people of this church, they had a deep connection. And he stopped to say, I want you to remind you of that before he continued on. So to restore a broken relationship by someone who's gone astray, it might be helpful to remind them, you know, one time we were on the same page. One time we both believed what the Scripture had to say. One time we both were responsive to the Holy Spirit and called sin, sin. One time we had fellowship. Do you remember that? What a good way to start. But he continues on. In verse 15, and the next thing he did was grieve their broken fellowship. Look in verse 15. And I just hear the grief in this verse. He says, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. He's, he's questioning, and I think this is just a sad tone. We ha- you, you blessed me. You, you took me in kindly. Where did that sense of blessing evaporate? Why did it? What happened here? Paul didn't change. Paul was here. Paul was still preaching the gospel. Nothing changed in Paul, but something happened. What would have broken that? Paul is asking them. The word blessed here is the word that means it's, it's, a, it's joy or happiness. It's more than just happiness, but it's, it's that idea of just being joyful. The Galatians had a sense of joy when Paul was there, when he was preaching to them. They were blessed, and now that blessing was gone. There was a time they would have done anything for Paul. They would have, and, and this is what people think, it was an eye disease that was giving him fits because if the, he needed eyes, the Galatian church would have said, here, I'll give you mine. Let me pull out my eyes and give them to you because you need them. And that's how much they loved them. It was a sacrificial love. And he says, I want 
to know what happened to that relationship. He's grieved that that, bro- that fellowship is now broken. And Paul is really making the point. It's, it's more of a rhetorical question because he knows exactly what has happened to this relationship. It's happened because false teaching entered into the equation. The Galatian church allowed the Judaizers to teach legalism, and this began to build up a barrier between them and Paul. He knows exactly what has happened. And so we need to make sure we can make no mistake here. False doctrine destroys Christian fellowship. When somebody sneaks in a teacher who just teaches a little bit different than the gospel. When, when somebody says, well, I know this particular teacher doesn't really teach about sin, but I like what he has to say. That is, that is the beginning of destroying Christian fellowship. We have to know that. When someone says, I know the teacher doesn't really believe what the Bible has to say, but man, he can really preach. Right? We got to say, uh uh, no. We cannot allow that to come in because it will destroy Christian fellowship. And I, unfortunately, could give several examples of this. I will not. But friends who hold strongly to things like legalism, and then they decided they cannot be my friend anymore because I did not take that stand. Or fellow pastors who decide they're going to go and, and hold and preach to unbiblical teachings. Men who I respect who are abandoning what I believe is the Christian faith for wokeness, and it's breaking my heart. Because I, I'm like, I, I don't know what kind of fellowship we have anymore. And church members who decide that their opinions are bigger and more important than the Spirit of God that binds us together. False doctrine destroys true Christian fellowship. That's why I'm thankful for our elders. One of the main jobs of our elders is to make sure that the doctrine that we preach is solid biblically. Not opinion, but what the Scripture has to say. And when the seven of us come together, and if there's an issue like that, we, we talk about it and say, where are we going to stand together? That is what's happening between the Galatian church and Paul, that there is this break of fellowship, and it's breaking Paul's heart. And so in restoring this relationship, he says, you remember where we had fellowship and it is breaking my heart that you're not there. It hurts me, is what he is saying. And so when we restore that relationship, we not only remind them of our fellowship and grieve that broken fellowship, but we speak the truth to them. Look in verse 16. He says, after reminding them of how they sacrificially love them, he says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's come to them and said, you're off doctrinally. 
You are now in the wrong. And they're shoving him out because of it. And he's like, I'm just telling you the truth. So am I the enemy by telling you the truth? The amazing thing about the gospel and God's word is that it is truth. And it is relevant. We don't make it relevant. It is relevant for any time, for any person, for any situation. We can take it and say, speak truth to it. If someone's being led astray in false doctrine, the thing they need most is the truth spoken to them in love. That is what they need. Now, when we're sick, we go to a doctor. And we don't go to a doctor who's going to sugarcoat what's going on with us. Let's say we think we might have cancer. We don't want to go to the doctor who's going to say, ah, you, don't, you don't really have cancer. We, we don't want that doctor. Am I right? We want a doctor who's going to tell us the truth in love, someone who cares about us enough to say, you have something inside you eating you alive. And we need to treat it, and we need to treat it now. It's not what we want to hear by any means. I'm guessing, right? We don't want to hear that news, but we don't want a doctor who won't tell us that. We want to hear what's wrong so that we can live. We want the truth. The truth may hurt, but the truth is what is needed. When we are restoring relationships by those who have begun to follow false teachers, I believe it's incredibly important we speak truth to them in love. They may not hear it. And a lot of times, in my experience, they plug their ears and move on. But it's our, that's God's business what does to their heart. My job is to speak the truth in love to them. And it's incredibly important Yes, remember the past fellowship and let them know you grieve that the fellowship has suffered, but speak the truth and love to them. You know, the first church I pastored was, there, there's just so many interesting stories from that particular church, but there were two young men, and, and by young men, I was 25 when I started preaching there, so these guys were younger than I was, so they were really young men, and, and it was Dana and Matt, and they were friends. How to, Somehow they started coming to church, and when they first came to church, they were regularly smoking marijuana. They were probably on other drugs, and, and they, I shared the gospel with them. They came to know Christ, and they were both baptized, and we saw a change in these two men, and they had given up their drugs, and they began to walk with Christ. And they began to get into the Word of God. But, what, but something happened. And I'm not sure exactly what happened, but they got caught up in strange doctrine. And I, they began to talk about the liberty we have in Christ, and we do, but they were abusing that, something that Paul is going to talk about in a later passage here in just a little bit. But they began to become abnormally interested in how the Bible calls some prophecies oracles. I don't know why that was really big to them. And while I was confronting them and talking with them and trying to love on them to keep them in the truth, 
I, they were denying that where they were back on drugs, but I am really sure they were using some sort of drug, whether marijuana or something harder, and, and then reading Scripture and interpreting it high, which is not the way to do it, okay? That will lead to some real problems. Not only is it wrong, Paul says, you know, your body is the temple of God. It, it is not something we should be doing. But then trying to infuse sin and the word of God, you just start getting some weird stuff. And these guys were talking about weird things. And I talked to them about that, and I candidly talked to them about their drug use. I remember one particular time that going to what I... Look, I was young and naive. I have no idea. My guess is it was some sort of crack house. It was in Colorado Springs, and I went to this place where this guy was at, and I physically removed him from this house, threw him in my car, and took him home so that he would not be there. I mean, so we were, we were involved in these guys' lives. But I remember one day they, event, they, they essentially disappeared. I mean, one day they were gone. I don't know what happened to them. To this day, I don't know what happened to them. I went every place where I knew they would normally be, and no one had seen them. And we tracked them, we tried to track them down, and I still don't know what happened to these two young men. And all I'm trying to say is that as a pastor and as their friend, it broke my heart to see these young men who, at least I thought, had come to know Christ, but all evidence at the end indicated they did not understand what transformation meant and probably were never saved. And it still hurts to, to this day. I can see that Matt had long red hair and Dana had bushy beard. Anyway, I can still see them. And I can, I can get where Paul is at, where he's saying, if you guys don't turn, I'm not sure if your salvation was real. We had fellowship, me and, and these, these two young men, and, and Rhonda and I, and people in the church, we had fellowship with them. And we saw at the beginning where they soaked in God's word and they grew in their faith and they were being discipled, but they were like that seed that grew up and then withered away because it had no root. And I grieved the loss of fellowship with them. And even though I talked with them directly and told them the truth, they still followed their, their strange ideas and and. And I know it would be good to give you an example of me giving this suggestion of how to restore the relationship and, 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 a, and an illustration that shows it works. But these two not accepting what ha you know, the truth of the situation, the truth of the gospel, doesn't mean that this doesn't impact people. Re going and talking about how we had relationship. I'm grieved over this broken relationship and speaking the truth and love to them. It's still valid. It still is, is meaningful. And maybe you know someone who was a faithful believer at one time and then got caught up in something. And they began to drift. They drifted from God. Then they drifted from you. 
And Paul says, this is one way to restore that kind of relationship. So in, in, in helping those who have drifted, we, we want to work to restore that relationship. But, but secondly, through the rest of this passage, Paul also teaches us we need to help them pursue Christ. We need to help them pursue Christ. Look in verse 17 through 20. Paul's only desire is that the Galatian church would pursue Christ and Christ alone. And so how do we help someone pursue Christ? Again, first, he talks about having pure motives. Look in verse 17 and 18. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish, you, they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it's, but it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you. So the first thing here is to have pure motives. This is a little bit hard maybe to follow. I felt like the NIV, at least in this verse, gave a little bit clearer idea of what's happening. Let's look at the NIV passage. And if you don't have the NIV, it's going to be up on the screen. This is what Paul says. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. See, the Judaizers wanted the Galatian church to pursue the Judaizers. They wanted a crowd. They wanted more people that they could count to say this, look how big our crowd is. And so the Judaizers were pursuing them, not for Christ, not for the kingdom of God, but for the benefit of themselves. They wanted, the Judaizers wanted them to follow the Judaizers. And so they zealously went after the Galatians. And Paul says, man, zealously going after someone is a good thing if it's for the right reason. It's okay if you have someone on your heart and you want them to follow Christ and you zealously, continually, passionately reach out to them over and over again. That's a good thing, he says. And Paul expresses here his wish that that their, their motives were correct. And I believe that's a theme throughout Scripture. I think, I think a theme throughout Scripture is why we do what we do is almost as important and maybe even more than what we do. Jesus says, you're praying, but you're praying for other people to see you. And so it's worthless. Or you're fasting, but you're only fasting so people will draw attention to yourself. And so the motive of why we were doing something is more important than what we do. Motive is important in the Christian life. And Paul is saying that these people here, they did not have the right motives. They were, 
He was pursuing them for Christ's sake. Paul was pursuing them for Christ's sake. And the Judaizers are pursuing them for their own interest, their own ego, their own benefit. Paul was building the kingdom of God, and the Judaizers were building their own kingdom. Now, when we're helping others pursue Christ, the real question is, are we doing it for God's glory or for our glory? And sometimes, sometimes we can get wrapped up in this idea that I'm helping somebody, look how good I am, <laughs> right? It is, our flesh is so deceitful and wicked that so many times we end up trying to build ourselves up instead of Christ. Do we want our name or our church's name to be known, or do we want Jesus' name to be known? Paul teaches us here, when we're pursuing, we want to help them pursue Christ, we need to look at our motives and make sure, are we really pursuing them for Christ and His kingdom? And then, once we check our motives, in essence, he says, disciple them. Look at 19. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul uses some interesting imagery here. First, he calls them children. And if, we've been, if you've been with me through all of Galatians, he's gone from you foolish Galatians, then he calls them to brothers, and then here he's calling them children. It shows he really does care for these people. He was irritated with them, but he loves them. And then he talks about labor pains. He says, I'm in labor pains. And I know you women are like, Paul doesn't know anything about labor pains, right? But that's what he's saying. He's saying, it is like I'm in labor with you guys all over again. It's if he's giving birth to a group of believers, but don't miss the imagery. He says, what he's saying is, I've gone through labor pains with you once before when you came to Christ. He was working with them, and he toiled with them, and he shared the gospel with them, and they came to Christ, and, and they, they gave birth. It was like he gave, had labor pains, and finally the Galatian church was born, and now he's going through labor pains with them all over again. I won't ask how many ladies would like to have given birth to your child twice, right? I got gone through the labor pains and I had it, and then we're going to do that all over again with the same child. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have to go through this all over again. And he's telling us he's hurting and he's struggling to get them on the right path. And he's suffering these labor pains. Look what it says in the last part of 19. Until Christ is formed in you. Formed here is a, the, the word formed is a medical term used to talk about the formation of an embryo, embryo in the womb. It's the idea and the thought that Christ's likeness is being shaped in the believer and Paul says that the Christian life is like a child that starts with a small cell and it grows and grows until it's fully developed and a child is born. And we start as believers, as Christ coming into our life. But then 
he is to grow, or we, we are to grow in him more and more until we become a fully matured child of God, which is eternity, right? We don't get there, but we are always striving toward becoming fully formed in Christ. But to help someone pursue Christ, that is, we must disciple him in how to do so. If this is a believer who has gone astray, we need to it takes time investing in them. It is painful steps in trying to help them get back on the right path because people, I don't know if you've noticed this, people are stubborn. People don't want to listen. People think they, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so we have to have patience and grace. And we're consistent and passionate in, in helping them get this done. But you ask anyone who has discipled anyone, it is hurting and frustration, but it is a joyful process, especially when you begin to see Christ being formed in this person. We have lots of ways to disciple people here at Rosemont. We have small groups on Sunday morning. We have some different small groups that are meeting outside the church. We have... Um, Different things like that. Maybe the best way to disciple someone, though, is one-on-one. -on -one. To find someone who, who is an immature believer, or, or maybe you're an immature believer, and you see someone you want to emulate, and just going and saying, hey, can we, can we meet and talk about what it means to be a Christian life? For the guys, it might be going fishing, but talking about the Christian life. It might be ladies getting together and doing what you guys do. I don't, I don't know. Maybe fishing. Do you guys fish? I don't know. But going fishing together as well. I, I don't know. But, but it's spending time together one-on-one, -on -one, but, but not just chatting about the weather, but saying, how are things going spiritually? What's God doing in your life this week? What, did, what has God shown you in his word? And working that way help those who've been led astray, to help them pursue Christ. We check our motives. We must invest in them and disciple them. And finally, Paul says, we just, we just need to love them. Look in verse 20. But I wish, nope, but I could wish to be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. See, he's, he's writing a harsh letter here. Remember, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, if you've begun by the Spirit, why do you think you're going to continue in the flesh? He's writing an angry letter, but he says, if I was with you, I could change my tone because I could engage you one-on-one. -on -one. If you've ever sent a text or an email or a letter, you know, sometimes the, the emotion that you're feeling does not come across. Sometimes you get an email and you're like, is that person mad at me? And, and they're just writing an email, you know. Or a text, and you're like, what does that mean? Because they put it in all caps, and oh, what's going on? And they just had their cap on. I don't know. So it, sometimes it doesn't communicate. And Paul says, if I was there in person, you could hear my tone. And you could see how I, how I love you guys. So since he was not with them, he had to write a harsher letter so they could really hear how he was feeling. And he said he was perplexed. He was perplexed about them. The word 
literally means to be without a way in which to go. Paul says, I simply am at a loss at what to do with this church, at the Galatian church. At this, one, one commentator said, at this distance, I frankly do not know what to do. And so what, what I hear is, is Paul's love. Yes, he's frustrated, he's angry, but only because he loves them so much, right? I mean, the people that really get under our skins are those that we really, really love is, is kind of the idea. He really loves them. And we must love people enough to not cast them aside at every mistake that they make because we all stumble. And I get there's a point where we say, I have done all that I could and this person still isn't responding. Someone else is going to have to, God's going to have to send someone else or I'm just going to wait till God responds. I, I get that. But here, it's saying we must love them enough to continue, continue praying for them, continue speaking the truth and love to them. We need to help people pursue Christ. And when we do that, we are showing them the greatest love that we have for them. You know, in the early 1930s, Herbert Armstrong began a ministry that eventually became the Worldwide Church of God. And he had a lot of unusual doctrines. That's the nice way of saying unbiblical, ungodly doctrines. The, the church had doctrines that were strange enough for the church to be classed, uh, classified as unorthodox or a heretical church. He was teaching heresy. Now, some of you might remember Herbert Armstrong, and you might have even liked Herbert Armstrong, but he was, by definition, a heretic. He did not preach the Word of God. He rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. He did not believe that the Holy Spirit was a personal being. And there was more. But in short, he was Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God were heretics. And among, I'm sorry, he, he, would, he taught these false doctrines very enthusiastically and people loved to hear him preach and eventually had 100,000 people in weekly services that would attend his church. He had a large following. After he died in 1986, the church went to some leaders, you know, next in line, however, their, however the succession worked in their church. And the leaders began to realize that many of his doctrines were not biblical. They were reading the Word. And they said, what Herbert Armstrong taught and what we hold to is not what the Word of God says. They began to study Scripture privately and eventually publicly. They began to reject these teachings. And the doctrines were eventually rejected and the church, at least part, the part of the church that was called Grace Communion International changed what they believed 
And what they hold to now falls in line with the National Association of Evangelicals. Now, I'm not saying they're a biblical church because <laughs> I, I don't know all that they hold to, and I'm guessing they hold some strange beliefs. But on the essentials of the Christian faith, the part of the church that's called Grace Communion International, they changed and they fell in line with what we would say orthodoxy in 2009. And they changed. They repented. It was the first time that anyone could remember a body of people who were once heretical and held to unbiblical teaching and the whole group saying, yes, we reject that and now we accept what the Scripture says. Now, there are still splinter groups that hold to what the Worldwide Church of God Hold, held to, and they still hold to that, and they're still heretical, but this group split off and made a new church. And so people like the Christian Research Institute that were part of this change, they were part of the people who were going to them and doing just this, going to them and speaking the truth and love to them and helping them pursue Christ and loving them enough to say, you're teaching is unbiblical. They walked alongside with them to the point where the entire church shifted to biblical truth. It can happen. It can happen. It's unique and a rare situation from an entire church doing it, but if an entire church can move, one person can for sure. The truth is, the Word of God is powerful. It is it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is, it does, you know, God's word doesn't return void. It'll accomplish what God wants to accomplish. It can lead wandering hearts back to God. It can change a sinner into a forgiven child of Christ. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think about this. Do you know somebody who needs to hear the truth of the gospel from you. Either a lost person who doesn't know Christ or maybe a believer who has wandered for one reason or another. Maybe today you realize that you've been like the Galatians and you've slowly been drifting from God and you need to repent, you need to turn from your ways and begin to follow God. But maybe if you're a believer today and the Lord's laying someone on your heart, maybe you need to disciple them and just spend time with them. And it's a hard, long road, but maybe that's what God's calling you. Maybe you need to commit to that today. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, I don't want to come across as if I know everything or this church knows everything, but we base all that we believe on your word, and if your word says it, we hold to it. And we stand on that. And so it's not our opinions that we think we're right. It's not our, our, our egos. It is that we trust in the God who revealed himself through his word and that that word is infallible and inerrant and we can stand on it and proclaim it with no, no hesitation, no embarrassment. 
unashamedly preach, this is the truth. But God, let us not hold to that on our own, just for ourselves. Use us to spread the truth of the gospel to our community and to our state and nation and world. And God, not so that Rosemont can have a name, but so that your name would be known everywhere. So that your kingdom would grow. So that people would be transformed and become children of God. So that your worship would increase. God, I ask that you would work in our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.